Udi. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You're listening to The Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Waking up in a Bangkok sex hotel with his mum on his 30th birthday, Christmas Day, with no money and nothing to do but talk, led to an epiphany for writer and actor and broadcaster Rick Samader. He writes about this and more in his new book, I Never Said I Loved You. And on this episode, we talk about his feelings of not belonging growing up with Indian parents in London, forgetting trips to New York, losing all his money on a Singapore buffet breakfast, and how travel can, in some ways, help heal. Guardian columnist Rick Samader is on the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Rick Samader. I'm a writer, broadcaster, journalist, jack of all trades, I suppose. No, that's only three trades. That's not all of them. A jack um, of three trades. Jack of three trades. That well sounds the phrase. same, does it? <laughs> not quite as impressive. You've got a column in the Guardian. I've got a column in the Guardian, and I write across other publications and I have just written a book it's a memoir called I Never Said I Loved You which has a lot of travel in it but is also a travel inward it's a mental health memoir I've got it in my hands here and I've been reading it and it is a lovely really really lovely book and kind of want to give you a hug I'm not going to give you a hug don't worry I'm not going to touch I'm, you I'm you've all over a bit hashtag me too uh, but I do kind of want to give you a hug I don't think it usually works that way around <laughs> Well, like in a sort of feel sorry for you way. Uh, no, just the gender situation. Oh, right, yes. Maybe that's the next wave. Maybe it's time. I want to, to get that. All right, I see what yeah, you mean. The, to get when do men get their Me Too movement? I, well, I think they, they probably, <laughs> there probably needs to be a, a, a Me Too movement for men as well, don't you think? In many ways, yeah. Well, well, I was just you know, reading all sorts of things in your book, and why we're talking about why I want to give you a hug is because you you talk really openly about your depression, and you, as you said, it's a mental health memoir. But tell us a little bit about that. God, it's hard to know where to start. Yeah, well, I was approached to write a memoir, and I sort of didn't know how to do it without really going into really difficult territory. And, um, a lot of my life and childhood has been quite unhappy. It's really shaped the person I am now, but I feel like I'm through a lot of that stuff now and I wanted to look at how that's happened and maybe help other people. Probably won't achieve that, but I wanted to at least write about it and see if there was a way to talk about mental health that was different to the ways we're habitually used to hearing about it, which is quite depressing, I suppose. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of Matt Haig's books, uh, which I absolutely love. Oh, great. Well, that's a massive compliment. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that people are talking more about mental health now. I, I, some people would say there's more mental health problems, but I think that actually it's because we're opening up and feeling a little bit more able to talk about it. Yeah, I think the spotlight has sort of broadened 
Although I guess that means it's not a spotlight anymore; it's just a light. <laughs> yeah, it's a very light, broad. The light. Light, it's a light. It's a broad light, and also we've got more language around it, and that language is becoming normalised and mainstream, so people are able to label their experiences better. So I think that's yeah why we're hearing a lot more of this stuff. But which must be very helpful for people. I imagine so. Yeah, I think just sharing a problem is half the cure. Really, it's not keeping things bottled up and feeling trapped inside yourself. I think is a really is the first big step you can take. Unless you're very sensitive to it, and then you, you t- sometimes take on the problem as well, which I find myself doing. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, travel is integral to your book and your life. And mm. one of the funniest things is on the about the book, you say that on your thirtieth birthday, you wake up in a Bangkok sex hotel with your mum, which I think is a great place to start. What were you doing <laughs> in a Bangkok sex hotel with your mother? It's not a great place to start your birthday if it's your thirtieth birthday. Sounds I was, crazy. Yeah, so it was, um, she had planned this, my mother and I are very close, but we didn't always talk that much. We sort of had an understanding, and we were very intuitively close. And I'd been going through a hard time, and my father, her husband, had died a few years ago, and I'd been heavily depressed for quite a while. And I was out of work, and I'd moved back home with her. And so she planned this trip for my 30th birthday, which I really was not looking forward to, (laughs) which I think a lot of people don't. So she took us to the other side of the world. She took us to Australia and Thailand as a special trip to kind of cheer me up and to show me the world. It didn't go that well, to be honest. It was quite a strange and bad trip, and I got very sick. We're both quite bad travellers, actually. So we it's both a great idea. Traveling. Yeah, great idea. Let's go as far away on the planet as we can. But we're both quite bad travellers, and we both got sick. We were both sort of trying to cover all of Australia in about two weeks which is ridiculous it's a big country yeah people don't realise you you can fit the whole of the United Kingdom into probably one of their walls (laughs) it's like a ridiculous and one of their houses as well their houses are so much bigger than ours they're like the country and sort of built on stilts and things yeah an amazing place but uh, so different so anyway that that portion didn't go that well but the the Bangkok bit that you were asking about so we ended up in Thailand but we we had planned to go to the islands but there were some family complications. Someone in my family had said, oh, well, sort out accommodation and we'll take care of you. And then that didn't happen because family's awful and unreliable. So we instead had to, last minute, book a week in Bangkok because we lost all of our money, as I recall. We, I think we stopped off in Singapore. I've got very terrible memories, so forgive me. We stopped off I did, actually, very briefly, I did read that in your book. You do have a very terrible re- memory and you forgot a whole trip to New York. You spent two weeks in New York. We'll, we'll get on to yes. that in a minute. I thought... This is going to be a really difficult interview if he forgot that he went to New York for two yeah, weeks. Yeah, it really so, will be difficult. <laughs> so, um, so sorry, you, you so went to Singapore, you remember together. that. Yeah, we went to Singapore as a sort of stopover, I think, but, so we weren't there very long, but we got really diddled on a buffet. Like I said, we're very bad travellers, and my mum, we, we were in this hotel and we went to this buffet, and it was like a lavish buffet, like, you know, the size of a cricket ground with like 17 kinds of salad, and... And so we were just overwhelmed. My mum doesn't really eat very much, so she's like, I'm just going to have some rice, which is what she eats for every meal, every day. So she took, like, this, like, the smallest bowl and then filled it a quarter full of, like, some rice that probably wasn't even on offer. I don't know where she got it from. And I had some sort of, I don't know, omelette. <laughs> and Very adventurous. Yeah, I think we were both incredibly ill already at that point. Uh, and then we got to the... The sort of checkout bit. We meant to. You meant to pay. It's not. It wasn't added into our hotel stay, and it was one of those buffets where it's incredibly expensive. It's like, <laughs> like I don't know, like 
70 quid or something for like a buffet breakfast which for an omelette and a bit of yeah rice. but it means you can eat everything so there's like all sorts of like you know salmon and like nasi goreng and like all these kind of international foods you can have whatever you want as much as you want and we had a half a bowl of rice and an omelette and it cleaned out our, our money <laughs> all the money we'd taken with the trip all the, all the cash we had so we she sort of complained about it and they just wouldn't budge so that was where all of our money the whole trip went was on this one breakfast in hotel so we couldn't afford to go around Singapore we just got on the buses I think and like rode around in a circle looking at a botanical garden from outside the wall so then we ended up in Thailand and we had no money and our accommodation had fallen through and the hand of our suitcase had broken so we had to buy a new suitcase for the last of our money so we really had like nothing so we ended up staying in this like cheap full sex hotel that was all we could find and it was my 30th birthday so that's where I, I woke up and it was Christmas and obviously it's a Buddhist country so that was kind of nothing <laughs> it was my 30th birthday and instead of being with all my friends I was in a sex hotel with my mother which is the worst combination of elements it's imagined this is really imagined. not going to help, help your depression but actually well, but actually, it well, you, did it, didn't it it did because there was nothing else to do we sat there for about an hour at first <laughs> sort of eating kind of bits of old banana maybe some um, saved up omelette that I had in my bag and then there was nothing else to do apart from just talk to each other because there was nothing else to do because it was a hotel that was not really geared towards much than something we weren't going to do <laughs> so we really talked for the first time in years properly and I asked her about her life and her childhood in India and opened up a bit about what was going on in my life and how I felt about things and yeah it was a really special morning and yeah it kind of changed me in a lot of ways and changed our relationship and so even though it was sort of the low one of the lowest points <laughs> or the one of the worst travel experiences to that point it actually turned into this surprising and kind of beautiful moment that kind of changed our relationship and it's incredible how one moment like that one conversation can actually change the way you feel about life about everything it can be a turning point yeah i think there are these things in us that we just hang on to and we don't share because we're scared and afraid and actually the cost of sharing those things which is becomes a sort of abstract gargantuan thing in our heads that will destroy everything the cost of carrying it around is so much worse and actually being honest with the people that we love about how we feel is so much more important it's such a weight off your mind and people are really often people will surprise you with how tolerant and resilient they are and how much they can help me and my mum are bad travellers. I remember when we were young, we took a trip to America, my, my dad and my mum, and none of us drive, so we just end up on these long sort of coach trips just on the road for hours and hours and stopping off for like six hours in Detroit or Pittsburgh. And it wasn't really a great way to do it. It wasn't the kind of road trip that you have in your mind. But I remember we went to Disneyland and they couldn't afford to get like tickets for everywhere. So I think we went to Epcot, which is like the educational bit, typical Asian family move. And I really wanted to go to Magic Mountain, but it wasn't to be. So, yeah, whenever we do travel, it's it's always not quite what I want it to be. I've got all these expectations around on, it. On the cheap. Yes. But that's quite impressive. Yeah. For someone in Lewisham, what year were you born in? I was born in 1980. 1980. That's actually quite exotic, is travelling those distances. Not everyone could afford to do that. Yeah. Even no, though you had to sort of, you know, save a bit while you were there. Yeah. That's no. really quite adventurous of your parents, I think. Certainly yes. when I was a kid growing up, uh, people didn't go to Disney. You know, only the really rich people went to Disney yeah. in America. Yeah, so even though we didn't do it how I wanted it, it was like, it was, they were very adventurous people and they always wanted me to 
obviously they moved from India to here and so they had that kind of adventurous spirit and my dad always said you should never restrict yourself try and taste everything try and explore life as much as you can so he really imbued that sort of spirit in me and my that must have been terrible when he died then obviously yeah it was uh, yeah it was it hit me very hard and I sort of lost my way for quite a few years and how old were you? I just turned 27 literally a few days before um, and they died as quite a quick aggressive cancer I think it was they've discovered after a post-mortem um, but it happened very quickly and turned our worlds upside down and being in this sort of country where you weren't sure if you belonged I only ever had my mum and my dad and then suddenly to have that halved felt very cruel and I felt very alone and yeah it was a it was a very hard time I think I did I did try to think about travelling to get away from that pain, but in the end, I just through a combination of not having the energy and also feeling like I needed to work through the pain here and find out who I was in relation to this country. Uh, I stayed here for a, a long time before I travelled again. Actually, travel can only do so much, can't it, to get you away, to help you escape? You know, you, you think that it's going to change everything, but actually, you're still there. Your feelings are still there. The feelings you're trying to run away from. Are still with you. Wherever you go, that's where you Wherever are. Wherever you are, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I remember I, after my breakup, I went to visit my friend who I went to America with and didn't remember. I went to see him in Spain. He was teaching English and, um, you know, we had a great time and we went to um, Ronda, which is where Hemingway loved and saw the gorge and this kind of beautiful town just like perched on the edge of disaster but miraculously holding on this gorgeous place. But I remember thinking, yeah, I can't run away from my problems and my grief and my feelings about the relationship. I need to go home come back to myself and you talk a bit in the book about your mum's childhood in India and it sounds like she had there was a lot of hardship was your dad Indian as well he was yeah um, so tell me a little bit about the family history in India which is of course a place of travel yes well it's such a huge kind of overwhelming place um, I mean it's just sort of it's more or less a whole continent isn't it really there's so many there's so such, such vast you're a Fiji Indian, aren't you? I am Fiji, Fiji, <laughs> yeah. half. God, I can't even say it. Half Fiji Indian. So my my dad's family are from India, but he was the third generation Fiji Indian because they were a product of indentured labour, which right. is another, yeah. you know, a, a terrible thing that the British did to the Indians, amongst yes. the many terrible things Stick that the British the did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> add that down the list. Yeah, being half, half British and half Indian. Yes, I can, I can probably get away with saying that. Yes, we were no, wankers, we're weren't we? <laughs> We were totally do you think of it as we? I don't think of it as we at all. What, as British? Yeah. Yeah, do you not think yourself as British? Not those I don't British. know what that, would, what that feels like. I mean, English, I definitely don't feel English, and I'm sure... I feel current, English. Do you? Yeah, I feel English, I feel European, I feel Indian, I feel Fijian, I feel like I'm from the Wirral, and I feel like I'm from Spain, where I grew up. And I also feel I'm from London and Brighton. That's a lot of places to feel connected to. Well, I do. I think it's nice to feel connected. But I'm not doing it on purpose. That's how mm. I feel. Where do you feel connected to? I feel connected to London, which definitely feels different to the rest of the country, for better and a lot of the time for worse. But apart from that, I don't really feel like I'm connected to anywhere, not to Would India. Would you feel like a British just... Asian, and I'm doing the whole inverted commas thing there? Yes, but there's quite... I don't know how broad that sort of... There are all kind of unconscious assumptions that go with that label. I don't know if I fit into those either. There's kind of all sorts of different unique pressures that are on you when you grow up with a mixed heritage. And you sort of... Well, I've always felt that I was never really 
eligible for either, and I was all letting down two teams as opposed to just one. And also, you talk in your book about. I mean, I do want to explore India as well. With yes, you. We like do. literally exploring. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> um, but uh, metaphorically speaking, as well. But you talk about you know growing up with as a an a person of Asian origin with Asian parents when you're a kid in Lewisham in, in South East London, just near where I live. Although I'm a bit on the posh side, up, up the hill. Oh, nice. Yeah, up the hill from there. Uh, although I'm definitely not posh. I've, <laughs> I've become more posh as I've got older. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? You kind of grow into the environment. So yes, know, absolutely. But you talk about, you know, there was, there was racism and I experienced racism. Maybe I got away with it a little bit more because I'm a girl and because I'm half Asian. But, you know, I had the P words thrown about a few times and you talk about that in your book. And actually, it's bloody devastating, isn't it? People don't understand how devastating it is, especially when, you know, this is where you're from. This is, you don't know any, anything else. And then people make you feel like you don't belong. It's awful. Yeah, well, I think that's a big part of why I don't feel connected, is knowing that those early messages of you, a lot of people don't want you here and you will never be welcome here. That sort of mistrust stays with you. And, and now sort of that kind of mood is slightly returning a bit and it, you sort of feel justified in your suspicion and I suppose on the other side of the coin lots of people that maybe are natively British would look at people feeling suspicious or wary and wonder why we're not assimilating better and you know so there's a sort of miscommunication there and a kind of mutual mistrust so it's a sad thing but it's a natural thing yeah I think if you're being rejected and abused from a young age you will carry those messages throughout your life and that's kind of really why I don't feel connected anymore. but you look like I'm going to describe what you're wearing today you're wearing a, a smock is it it's got a bit of an Asian flavour to it so it feels like mm. you might have embraced that side as I certainly have I wanted to reject that side when I was a kid I wanted to be the little blonde girl because they were the pretty girls and mm. that everyone wanted to hang out with and they said I was too ugly to play fairies and I know oh, that, that's devastating you're when you're quite like a, a lot like a fairy a seven, yeah I could, I could be a bloody fairy be a bloody fairy I, a bloody, I don't want to be a fairy they? now fuck my fairies <laughs> Sorry, Bo man. Peep, it's all about Bo Peep. Is it all about Bo Peep? Yeah, you watched Toy Story 4. Oh, yes, yeah. I have. Yeah, of course, oh. yeah. yeah. I took my, I've got two little boys and I took them to the cinema to see it. It is about, yeah, Bo Peep, Bo blonde, Peep. you know. Mind you, she's a good but role she's a model. Good one, yeah, yeah, she's good, yeah. yeah but she, she is very blonde. But uh, I don't know where I was going with that. I just got <laughs> a, bit, a bit of therapy. Yeah, that's <laughs> a bit fine. of therapy out there. They wouldn't let me valid. play fairies. Like, would they let you play fairies in Lewisham um, as an Asian no, boy? No, we didn't play fairies in Lewisham as an Asian boy. But um, I think that would have been helpful for all of us if we had. There'd been a bit more of it. There should be more fairies in Lewisham. Well, Lewisham is actually very upmarket these days. It's trendy, really? isn't it? It's, it's sought after. It's mad, yeah. I, I live in Peckham and I grew up in Lewisham. And those places that were just really just jokes to all my... Even friends that I went to school in South London, but friends that didn't live in that area or lived in different areas. Or as, grew, as I grew older, friends in North London, they just looked at these places as jokes. And now, now they're sort of living there or even buying houses. I'm like, I feel a bit resentful. I'm like, well, you stay where you stay on your side of the river. Oh, yeah, exactly. I sound exactly like the people you know, go back to your go back to where you came from go back to the other side <laughs> of the river like three Kentish, miles away yeah, Kentish Town yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk a little about India then have you been to India? I have been to India many times um, did you go as a child? yeah we used to go and visit family every few years when I was a child I bet you felt sort of out of place there as well because you were a Londoner essentially yes completely there's nothing like that moment I don't know if you have this but when you go back and realise that you don't fit into the place where everyone's telling you you're from. <laughs> and so where you're, am I from? Yeah, you're a complete stranger there as well. And I don't speak the languages, which is a big hindrance. And obviously, just something, but also just the way you dress and where you carry yourself, you're clearly not from there. You're not part of that culture. And that's a really um, similarly devastating thing to have that 
that realisation that you're, you are sort of adrift between these continents. Well, India's a bit of hard work as well, isn't it? I mean, I do love it, the sights and the sounds and the smells. It is, you know, it's a sensory overload in many ways, but it's hard work too. It is hard work, yeah. The, when you can't just be a tourist, when it's a bit more complicated by family and psychic ancestral roots, yeah, when you're less inured to that stuff and less shielded from it, it is a really overwhelming place and your your place in the world sort of comes up and your thoughts about family and how you, how you how you live your life all that stuff sort of swirls around and it's it's just so noisy and there's dogs through the night and horns through the day and just people wanting your attention all the time because I think there's something about travel that I don't really like which is that you're a kind of target when you go somewhere where you're not from people can tell and they either will well they usually want something from you because it's either a service economy or they see a chance to sell you something or get something from you or con you or rip you off and uh, you know you've got to deal with a lot so I don't really like that aspect of travel it's it is quite a it feels like painting big bullseye on you my mum and dad went to India not so long ago they've been several times and you know we have no we have roots there but we we don't know it's you know three generations my dad was third generation Indian Fijian but they went on a uh, they were on a tour group uh, British people and you know from the UK and they went down to the restaurant one morning and my dad was walking in with my mum because my dad's dark and my mum's white and they stopped him from going in with the group and there were so many things that was wrong with that it's like oh well one you know he's with the group you think he's not but two why are you stopping brown people from going into the restaurant you (laughs) know that's mad yeah the kind of colour bar in places is like yeah and even in people I know in India like that overt favouring of fairer skin and like and like you my my mother and my father they have different castes and they have different um, economic backgrounds and different like colour to their skin and it's really kind of and I, I've seen both sides of the family life and what, it, what it's like and it's really shocking that that stuff because we live here and it's kind of that stuff is at least a bit more hidden you're, <laughs> you're all lumped into one sort of brown mass yeah exactly you? You know, we're not sort of shadish Shadest as far Shadest. as I know here, but maybe because I am mixed race and I, I don't know actually. No, I think we get lumped in here. But once you're in a brown country, there's like finer gradations of racism. Yeah, really, really like, come out yeah. In, the, yeah, in the sun. <laughs> so, what's, tell me your your most standout moment in India. What's the what's the funniest thing that's happened to you in India? I like stories. If you can think of any stories for me, I remember being there with my ex girlfriend who was white and her brother joined us for a bit of the trip and he's a great traveller and he's been all around India and speaks more Hindi than I do which is embarrassing uh, because they're, they're from just they're English people from Balham but um, he was so we were on this train all together and my mum was there and it was a long train journey I really like long train journeys um, so we were all on this train and we and we went to stand in the the between the carriages a sort of connecting bit of platform where you can feel the where it's just open you can feel the wind in your hair and you're going past all the paddy fields and it's beautiful and I remember seeing and he was just um, sitting with the, with, the, with the obviously there was no door on this bit so he was just sitting in the doorway with like this beautiful vivid scenery rushing past and the wind on him and he had his notebook out and he was like I think he had his earphones in he was just having his thoughts you know and, really lost in the, the vivid sensation of India and I was on the other side and because I'm Indian a man, an Indian man, a young Indian guy came up from the other carriage and he wanted to hang out on that bit and smoke too and 
So there was one side where a white traveller was there, sort of in lost in this beatific kind of realm of wonder, and the guy left him alone, because I think that's what what they do. But with me, he just sort of jostled in and, like, pushed himself up against me and slightly pushed me out of the way, I was just smoking by the window. And I realised that I would never have the same space given to me or the same leeway as, like, the white traveller. I had a very different experience. And I sort of jostled at it and bristled and felt very kind of put out and sort of well why don't I get to travel in the same way as everyone else and I've never been to Goa or Kerala because we always go to where the family is which is not those places it's sort of less touristy and less fun and so I suppose I felt a bit shut out from that world of travelling as fun in India I don't really have those kind of stories that are I think what you're looking for I read um, I read recently it was saw online that people are moaning about um, white beggars abroad at the moment in places like India and Southeast Asia where like Westerners will be sitting there with a begging for money with a sign <laughs> saying need money to travel and for weed and for things like that and people are like they're doing this online shaming thing and taking pictures of them and going viral in the way that you've got these you know this whole wow. sort of like I'm poor because I'm a traveller it's like yeah you are poor when you're travelling but you've got like a yeah. you know chances are you've got a mum yeah. and dad and a house back home Go back to Surrey. possibly even right. a trust fund in Surrey <laughs> exactly oh my god amazing uh, the shamelessness is kind of almost admirable uh, yeah I know <laughs> literally yeah, on the street next to like people with no arms and legs yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> so, in the gutter <laughs> and you're like the blonde guy getting, yeah. the, getting the coins like thanks I need to get good. to Nepal that <laughs> <laughs> is beautiful there, yeah. <laughs> help keep me in Herschel backpack <laughs> I need uh, I need a new didgeridoo when I get there these dreads don't make themselves, you know. Well, I think they do, don't they? I don't know, actually. I've never tried. But no, I think you... There's a place... Maybe not with white people. Maybe uh, on the Cal San Road. Now, what book is this? There is a book. It might have been The Beach, where they talk about being in Bangkok and how people, you know, middle-class travellers from Surrey arrive and they can go down the whole Khao San Road and look completely different by the end of it. You know, first of all, they get their henna tattoo, <laughs> then they get their dreads made and they get their backpack yeah. and their sandals and their baggy trousers. And by the end, you know, they're like, instead of like Jason, they're Jay, you know, from, from I'm not from, from the in-betweeners too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm a citizen of the world. You yes, know, exactly. But mainly British. Well, I remember one thing that happened in India was sort of along those lines. Yeah, I was in Nepal with my mum and and I was speaking to someone who was local there who lived there and, and he was telling me that he could tell where every traveller or person that had come there was from from like a real distance just coming up he was like Dutch German Scandi- like Finnish I think it would be quite specific and, and they'd come up and they'd walk past and I'd be able to and I'd sort of check them but I'm oh, sorry where are you guys from and he was right 100% of the time that was mad to me that he could re- that, I don't know maybe there's something about growing up and the effect of the climate over generations on people and sort of phenotypes but you could really tell with a real specificity where everyone was from even though they're trying to be this sort of pan-Asian kind of global traveller they, they're sort of where they were from was really bred into them I feel like I have the same skill and it was honed by years of working going back off to university or in the holidays and working in cheesy bars on the Costa del Sol giving out p- tickets PR you know PRs so I had yeah. to give out tickets 
I remember my man saying to me when I was going out on night to work, she said, don't speak to any strange men. I was like, Nan, it's literally my job <laughs> to speak to strange my men. Entirety of my job. <laughs> They've made my whole career out of <laughs> Look what I'm doing now. Yeah, no, it's well. <laughs> made a whole career out Did you have like um, bullet straps or bullet belts or like tequila shots? Uh, no, I, sadly I didn't. But after I'd given out the tickets for the PR, I did have to go and dance on the bar in a mini dress. And oh, um, wow. it was we got free drinks, it, you know. Yeah, so you've got to do what you've got to do. But I, I could tell the Dutch people, I could tell the Germans, I could easily tell the English. Obviously, yes. I could tell the Spanish, right. and yeah. I could, you could really tell what they were wearing. Which at that point in the nineties was not flattering for anyone. I think global hypercolor. Yeah, about? there'd be plenty of global hypercolor. There were a lot of cut-off denim shorts yes. for the men as well like, oh, particularly God. the Dutch who had like leather yes. waistcoats and long hair you know it was, and that, that was like a decade too late for this sort of activity it's like the Dutch and Germans were into their thighs yes yeah they were exposing mm. a lot of thigh yeah. but I lived in Holland for a while and there wasn't that much thigh exposure as far as I recall it was just no. seemed to be when they go on holiday yeah. <laughs> that's thigh time thigh, yeah. thigh time yeah <laughs> holiday is thigh time do the Dutch have, have no curtains because they believe in this like Protestant sort of idea of religious transparency that everyone can, can there's nothing hidden from the Lord. Oh God! Now you mention it, have okay. I seen curtains in Holland? No, I saw a lot of blinds. Did okay. you see curtains? It's because uh, of my hearing. You said curtains. Curtains, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking they just had. I recall it's just a lot of bare windows and seeing into people's lives and asking someone about that, and they said it was something to do with. Um, I never noticed that. I was probably too off my head when I lived in... <laughs> <laughs> Good uh, Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I'd love to know that. If any yeah. listeners can tell us about curtains, and indeed size in Holland. What's the <laughs> issue with the curtains? What is the issue with the size? Not not in the country, but on holiday. Yeah. I don't think they do those denim cutters. Imagine the 90s all the rage again. They're probably doing the thigh thing again, aren't they? Thighs back in. Thighs back in. Curtains yeah. out. Thighs in, curtains out. <laughs> curtains in the hair as well was a big night. Curtains <laughs> in the hair. <laughs> curtains in the hair, no curtains in the house. Yeah. That is the uh, that, that is the law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where else could I ask you about? So you, you went to, to New York for two weeks and totally forgot about it. And you yes. went two weeks just after 9-11. Yeah. So this is like a major deal. You went to meet to be, see Ground Zero yeah. and your friends remind you of this. And you're like, no, I've never been to New York. That's a bizarre trip to forget about. Do you remember anything about it now? In like long-term yes. memory being better than short-term memory. Yes, now, because I've had to think about it and write about it, I do remember it all. But I remember arguing with him. This is my friend Amish Tom. He said well, he just mentioned when we'd been to New York. And I was like, I've, I've never been to New York. He's like, we went to New York on holiday together. I was like, I don't think I, I think I'd remember that. And we just <laughs> argued for months. And I was absolutely. Con- it's the maddest thing. I was convinced I'd never been to New York. I've been to America as a child, but not as an adult. And then just to prove him wrong, one day I started looking through my passport and I saw this JFK stamp. And I was like, I've been to New York on holiday for two weeks and forgotten about it. It's absolutely mad. That must be really disorientating. It's, yeah, and it happens quite a lot. Is it disorientating or disorienting? I say disorienting because I'm quite lazy and it's easier to say. But, but which is sure. correct? I always get that wrong. Tating or... Anyway. Well, it's just under use, isn't it? I, so l- I think love it's, it. if, we, if we push is this it? disorienting message... Yes, maybe it's, it's disorienting. quite disorientating. Yes. Well, is there well, the word itself a writer? Is I'm a writer, I should know, I don't mm. know. But between us... Between us, we don't know. We should be more oriented We should be, yeah, more orientated... Uh, but now I remember everything. You remember so you, it came back to you and yeah, you saw your like, stamp. There was, was a mad trip and it all came back to me. And I remember, it was yeah, we kind of, we went, so it's after 9-11 and there's a real strange sort of atmosphere there, but, but we were staying with a cool guy in Brooklyn and he took us to this, he knew a lot of artists, we went to this speakeasy and watched a lot of punk 
I think it was a dwarf punk band were playing and then we went to another squat and we watched that Karen Carpenter biopic that Todd Solons did the one that was banned with Barbie dolls doing the Karen Carpenter story and I'd never seen anything like that um, we ran into a housemate of ours from Liverpool actually in the Spanish portrait wing of the Met Gallery and the Met Gallery itself is huge like a sort of small town and obviously we're in New York which is where none of us are from and we ran into this person I was like it's absolutely mad that this also the Spanish portrait wing I mean not I, the it's, big it's, not yeah, the big it's hitter. not like the big hitter yeah. it's kind of a bit boring I know yeah. the Spanish portrait is it well, like Velasquez well, I don't think like it was that. even Velasquez maybe it was it's the only one I can think of so yeah. I just thought I'd drop that in to make it look like I know about my art yes and but after it, it's the only old stuff I know obviously you know the Picassos and you know yeah. the Nero's and the Darley's but. but it's absolutely mad to run into someone that you know in I sort of love that now when you when you do run into people you know from in a totally different context in a different city. I think that's that can be one of the best things about travelling is recontextualising your relationship in a totally different environment and having new experiences. Definitely, and of course today you wouldn't forget you'd been somewhere because it'd be on your Instagram or Twitter or Facebook feed, and you go, "Oh yeah, yes. look, I ran into Bob in the whoever it was." Yes, Bob, was it? but does in it also Spanish portrait yeah. in the, But does no, it also flatten the experience because you're not just in your head and your feelings; you're just documenting. Yes, I think in a way it changes things, doesn't it? It changes things. And actually, when you look back on your childhood memories, you know, all our photos definitely, you know, generations for the last two or three generations only had a few childhood photos before it went digital and we mm. started photographing everything. And kind of your child, childhood memories are sort of tagged to those photos almost because those are the bits you remember. So when you grow up these days, it's going to be completely different because everything is documented. I think but, it changes yes. things in many ways. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess it can be both. Yeah, I mean, we'll forget less, but maybe our memories won't have as much freedom to roam, which is what memories and imagination do. Now we'll just reducing to these are the pictures. I've got a whole album more if you want more. This is what happened. This is objectively who was there. This is what I looked like at that time. And our brains have nothing else to do with that information, I suppose. At least we looked better than we did when it, you had to get a roll of film developed and you'd get it back and someone's thumb was in it and everyone's eyes were red and yes, know, that's looking, true. there was a really bad flash. At least we can pretend we look better than we actually do by, mind you, I never put filters on or anything like that, but you know. Really? You're not filtering? I never do filters. Do you do filters? Uh, sometimes. Do you? Uh, I don't do any filters. Are you saying no hashtag no filter? No, I never do. Just. Yeah. Why? Because I'm just so incredibly beautiful. That's true. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I don't nice. know. I just don't, I, if I try them, I just feel, it just feels wrong. I do worry about the sort of mendacity of it. Am I just lying? I don't look like that. My skin is not as smooth as that, or it wasn't that sunny. I do sort of worry about this kind of advertisementification of our lives. Particularly for travel, I like things to look how they are. And when I see travel accounts on Instagram when it's all completely fake, I saw one of London the other day, a picture of like, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting photo. It's like, oh, it's the London Eye. And I can, it was just, it was the river, the river was bright pink. It's like, it doesn't look like that. It was all, it doesn't look like that. I mean, I guess I, I know there's an art to it, you know, and I get that. But when it comes to people and places, I want to see what they're really like, warts and all. That's true, yes. I suppose it, there is an art to it, but a lot of the time we're, look, we're not looking at it through that lens. We're looking at, oh, I want to go there and I want that picture. And we travel to get the pictures, which is a really strange sort of new phenomenon or here, I guess. Yeah, we're all doing it, aren't we? Is travel important to you? I'm talking about the depression as well for a minute. It's, uh, I know Matt Haig and his reasons to stay alive 
talks about how travel has really helped him about going somewhere and putting yourself out of your comfort zone which might seem like quite a scary thing to someone who suffers from anxiety or depression but actually it finds he finds it incredibly helpful do you find travel helpful is is it important to you in general i do find it helpful i don't know I travel a lot for work and I think it's a different thing and I don't always love that because it's still work and you can't really complain about it, obviously. But um, I think what's really important to me is connecting with people from different places and that's really healing and it sort of makes sense of... or sort of resolves that kind of isolation and loneliness that a lot of us can be prone to and realising that we are humans and we struggle with the same things wherever we're from and we can connect to people of... All, from all sorts of countries and like, that's my favourite feeling and that doesn't have to be travelling that can be here but often it is travelling and people and relationships I think are, are important to me and that's what I get from travel Are you in a happy place now? Yeah I'm in an overworked and stressed place it's not happy but I don't know if happy is always a thing to go for I think satisfaction and creatively fruitful and connected are things to aim for and I am those things my last question is always about music and because I feel that travel and music go hand in hand. It helps cement memories and you know, entertain you along the journey. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time or place of travel, it doesn't have to be your favourite song, it doesn't have to be a great song, just a moment when you heard a song, it was a time and a place of travel, what would that song be and why? Weirdly, the one that's coming to mind is... Um... <laughs> uh, I go... I go to France every year. Basically, I just go on the same holiday every year with a group of old friends I've known for like 20 years. And we go to a house in, in, in the Dordogne region and we just eat cheese until we're entirely spherical and swim. And we used to sort of go to the market and sort of eat mool and shop, but then we started hearing too many British accents. So now we just stay in the house. So I go there every year and I'm going there this week, in fact. And I remember... Driving, we were going. We we're driving to the market in the local town. All of us, too many of us, crammed into this one small car, a rental car, and it was sunny. And it, I think we were driving back from the market actually, and I was just with these people that I love. I, I just knew every part of them, or so, or so much about them. We had so much history together. And this song came on the radio. It was French radio, and it was some sort of French hip hop song. It was like Tombe la. Chemise, tombe la chemise, something about throw your shirt off over there. I don't know, but it was, it was so bouncy and so happy, and I just felt so completely alive in that moment in the sunshine. And I never found the song. I always kept trying to like search on Google, tombe la chemise lyrics, French hip hop. Never found it, so it just belonged to that moment. I might sort of quite like that. But I don't know what it's called, so I don't know if I can have that one. No, you well, can there, have that one. Okay. If you got well, another there, one, though, that's there is another one, actually. We'll see yeah. if we can find it. If anyone listen, if, if any listeners know Tombe La Chamise. Yeah, Tombe La Chamise. Please write in. <laughs> please when I say write in, you know, like pen and paper, we've got a PO box note. We, we, yes. You know, email. Carrier pigeon. Yeah, anything. Smoke but, signal. But one I do know the name of, everyone will know the name of, is a song by Fleetwood Mac. First song off Rumours, Secondhand News. And I remember it was the first time... I'd just become a journalist fairly recently, sort of by accident, and I was sent to uh, L.A., it was, to interview a man who was burying himself alive in a coffin with snakes. He was an escapologist who was doing a TV show in the Mojave Desert. So I was being flown to the Mojave Desert. And it was the first time I'd flown alone, weirdly, and I was, you know, I was in my 30s, so I wasn't young. and, And I was on the plane, and I was on this seat, and I 
it was a long flight, there was nothing to do, so I started looking through the, the music and I'd done a few films. And it was uh, Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, and I'd never heard that song. So I'd never flown alone before, and I'd never heard Rumours by Fleetwood Mac, which is a very late age to not hear that. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think and I was playing that when I was like 13. Yeah, and it's an amazing album, and I'd never heard it before. And I, and I, so I played this song by the, fir- the first few moments of that song, and it's so good. And I was, I was in a sort of silver cocoon in the sky, travelling through time zones, listening to this like insane divine music, and I was like... God, I really feel like a new chapter of life has opened up and I feel safe in this. I feel like I'm on the threshold of an adventure and all of life is before me. And it was a really specific thing that... I don't know if I've had to that degree ever since, but I've talked a lot about travelling as a sort of negative thing and being a victim and all of that stuff and out of place, but that was a time when I was travelling and it felt full of possibility and excitement and wonder and being alive. So I've, got, I've also got a landing in LA moment and it felt incredible. I was 18 and I was going to America for the first time and my brother lived there and the only reason me and my mum could go was because we won the lottery. We won £15,000 on the lottery, which felt wow. like a lot of money. And we're like, that's it, we're going to meet Marcus in LA and we yeah. hadn't seen him for two years at that point because, you know, communication and money and all of that stuff. And when we were landing in LA and you see all the swimming pools and the villas and the you know it's Los Angeles it's America down there mm. America was such a big deal when I was growing up what was playing in on the airplane in my headphones was Boys of Summer it'd be Don Henley Don, Henley. Don Henley yeah. yeah Don Henley Boys of Summer great. and I'm landing in LA yes. and the swimming pools everywhere and that was a great LA Life landing is moment. Here. yeah that's exactly. a great LA landing that's a good LA landing the LA landing is a good landing I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rick as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. It's the middle of summer and I'm in Spain for six weeks still, so episodes might be sporadic, but I will definitely bring you some more of these fabulous guests soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.